Hey everyone, you are listening to the official podcast of the Evangelical Free Church of Ken, where our mission is to glorify God, helping each other become mature disciples of Christ as we worship, grow, serve, and reach. Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This morning, we're going to discuss, we're going to talk about a concept that ultimately the church avoids talking about a lot of times. And it's something that we should be talking about. It's something that God has established and we should have no shame in discussing or speaking about. We're going to be talking about the biblical design for sex. And it might seem strange as to why I'm starting in 1 Thessalonians 4, but this is the foundation upon which we're going to build everything else uh, because this establishes in 1 Thessalonians 4, God's desire in all of these areas, in all of this, we have to root back into why has God established what he has established and what is his ultimate desire for us as his people, for the church. So 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 3, says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, But in holiness, everyone say holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Ultimately, God's desire in all things is for the sanctification of his people. Sanctification is a big word. For the holiness of his people in all things, God desires above anything else that you and I would be holy as he is holy. This fits into the exact framework of the gospel where the bad news is on your own, you are incapable of holiness. Because any measure of sin that you've committed in your life disqualifies you. From being holy. That's the bad news. The good news is. Christ's righteousness. Gives us a way to be declared righteous in God's eyes. Adopted into his family as co-heirs with Christ. I, I don't understand how if we are truly a part of the church and the family of God. We can't. How we cannot get excited about that. Because that is the greatest news we can find out when we truly understand that apart from Christ, we are incapable of righteousness. And yet Christ was perfectly righteous and he gave his life for us. 
So at the foundation of all of this is the gospel, this good news. At the foundation of a biblical conversation and understanding of sex is the gospel, the good news. And if we don't start there, we will miss the point. Now, clearly, 1 Thessalonians 4 goes on and it communicates that, all right, God's will for you is your sanctification, that you abstain, abstain from sexual immorality, pursue holiness, all right? This is the goal. So church, that about does it for today. Remember, unless you are married, sex is bad and good luck. This is how the conversation has gone. For years and years and years and years. This is how the conversation has gone in our families. This is how the conversation has gone in the church. Where all we hear about the sexual relationship is that it's bad. It's bad. Stay away from it. Don't do it. But when you're married, so bad, 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 bad. Your whole life it's bad and then you're married. Oh, it's good. No. Now, I'm not going to, I'm going to clarify something, okay? I'm not going to stand up here and say, oh no, sorry, the church has had it all wrong all these years and just whatever, whatever goes, no, 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 no. But what I am saying is that small piece where we say it's bad if you're not married and that's the end of the conversation, we are not unpacking God's design for the sexual relationship. We are not identifying the good in what God created to be. In fact, we go as far as to ultimately in our conversations deny that God had any doing in this. And we do that oftentimes subconsciously without actually thinking about it. What if I told you that every generation is seeing a steady growth in statistical sexual activity? What if I told you that statistically more and more kids 13 years old and younger are having sex? What if I told you that the average age of pornography exposure is 11 years old? The average. Some as young as 5 years old. What if I told you that God is the author of the sexual relationship? What if I told you that sex is a good thing intended to bring glory to God? What if I told you that the sexual relationship can be part of our sanctification as the church? Here's our main idea for today. God designed sex for mankind's benefit and his glory. And we're going to unpack that, and you're going to see why this, in all my study this week, this is the main concept over and over again that came back to the forefront. Ultimately, God designed sex for mankind's benefit and His glory, God's glory, glory to Himself. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to start in Genesis, and we're going to go through multiple scripture passages and seek to understand what is God's design for the sexual relationship. And then the second part of this is we're going to ask the question, how do we end up tainting God's design? Okay? But before we do that, let's pause, let's pray, let's commit this time to the Lord, 
and we're going we're gonna to worship and glorify him in this. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the clarification it gives us on conversations like sex. And may we be faithful. May we be faithful to hold fast to what you have established, what you have designed for your glory, that you would be praised. Lord, we ask that you would continue this work of sanctification among us. Lord, that your spirit would work in our lives, through our lives, in our community, in our state, in our country, around the world, to lead people ultimately to a theological foundation that's rooted in Christ-likeness. We pray this in his name. Amen. So, starting in Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1, what we begin with in understanding God's design and the purpose for his design in the sexual relationship is in Genesis 1, verses 27 and 28. Genesis 1, 27 and 28. And in Genesis 1, 27, we have an often quoted passage which identifies that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Everyone say all. Everyone say all. All people are made in the image of God. Okay? There's no one outside of that umbrella who is a human being. There is no such thing as a human being who's not made in God's image. It's the only created entity in the book of Genesis that was made in the image of God. Created unique. And in verse 28, it goes on and says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Church, we need to understand that God could have created any feasible way for procreation to happen. He didn't. God designed sex for the purpose of procreation. This is one aspect. Now, this is not where the conversation ends, okay? This is not where this stops because there's so much more in the purpose behind God's design for the sexual relationship. But this is a piece of it, okay? And we have to understand that God, in his sovereignty, designed this to be the way it is. I'll, I'll never forget whenever I, uh, when, when my oldest daughter was like two or three, so young, maybe four, and she was walking around the house one day with a pumpkin seed in her belly button. And we're like, what are you doing? And she goes, I'm making a baby. All right? And in that moment, I realized, okay, God, one, this conversation came way sooner than I ever anticipated as a parent. And we, we didn't have a detailed conversation at that point, but... At the same time, what I realized in that moment is God could have established it that way. You put a seed in the ground and a plant grows, right? In that little girl's mind, this makes sense. Mom had her sister for nine months in her belly and she grew and then there was a baby. Like, we put seeds in the ground, it grows, it produces fruit. Makes sense. Pretty logical explanation. But the reality is God didn't establish it that way. 
You want to take this another step further. When God created male and female, what did he say about his creation? It is very good. Man made in my image and it is very good. You know what else was very good? The fact that God established them as male and female with biological differences, with the ability to procreate in a specific way. And he said, that is very good. God designed it that way. He could have done it differently, but he didn't. He established a means by which they would multiply and he called it very good. By all means, church, we too should see it as very good. Secondly, God's design, enjoyment, and pleasure. This is a part of God's design. Once again, we could go back to the first understanding that God could have created this just for procreation, and that was it. That was the end of the story. But I want to read for you a couple of passages And I would be interested to see how many of you have ever heard your pastor have you turn to Song of Solomon on a Sunday morning. In fact, when I was getting ready to teach this, I've had multiple people when I told them what I was teaching on. Their response to me first was, from the pulpit? Yes! Absolutely! And if you've never read through Song of Solomon, then you've never read through your whole Bible. And I would challenge you, read the whole Bible. Read all of God's inspired word. This is in Scripture. This is beneficial. If it wasn't beneficial and meant for your exhortation, according to the rest of Scripture, where it says the Word of God is living and active, that it's profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, and for training in righteousness, then Song of Solomon is the same emphasis, same purpose, okay? But I want you to listen to a portion of Song of Solomon. For some of you, maybe Song of Songs. All right. Song of Songs. Song of Solomon. It's the same book. Chapter 7. <clears throat> Listen to this. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree and your breasts are like its clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine and the scent of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. It goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. I am beloved's and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. Now, you can't tell me you read that and can't deduct that something was going on in the vineyard. Okay? The reality is, this is scripture, church. And I want, this is why, alright, church, this is a good reason why I want you to make sure you're reading in your Bibles with me. Because, my goodness, if you've never opened a Bible and you heard me read that, you go, no. There's no way that's in the Bible. Yes, it is. Why? Because God intended the sexual relationship to be something that is enjoyed and is pleasurable. Proverbs 5 is another passage that talks about this. 
says, drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Now, understand, Proverbs is written from a father to a son, okay? This does not mean that God intended the sexual relationship to only be enjoyable or pleasurable for husbands, for men. That is not God's design, okay? In this context, the father's writing to his son, and he's communicating that you enjoy the wife of your youth. That her and her alone would satisfy you. That your eyes would be only for her. There's this aspect, this specific aspect of God's design that's focused around pleasure and enjoyment. Now, the third portion of God's design that we see in Scripture is unity. If you go back to Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. And many of you have probably heard this passage quoted at a wedding before, but you've only heard the first part of this passage quoted at a wedding, I guarantee it, where it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become what? One flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed. There is to be an aspect of the sexual relationship where you are the most vulnerable, transparent, you have given of yourself at a level that no one else has been given. Now, I'm going to come right out and say I recognize we live in a broken world. And we live in a society where oftentimes we don't see God's design lived out. Many of you here have experienced brokenness in sexual relationships, whether that be a broken marriage or it be falling into temptation. And I want you to hear me and I want you to hear me clearly. There is redemption in all sin. No one, no matter what has happened in your life, is outside of the grace of God. No matter what has happened in your life, no matter what has taken place, no matter what choice you have made, none of it is more than Christ has redeemed. And we need to have that conversation because many times the conversation goes, sex is bad, sex is bad, sex is bad until you're married and then it's good. Oh man, you had sex before you were married, you are bad. That's the association we make. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Because we use that logic, then it applies to every single thing else that you've done. Lying is bad. Lying is bad. Lying is bad. You've lied. You're bad. Gluttony is bad. Gluttony is bad. Gluttony is bad. You're a glutton. You're bad. The gospel says in Christ you're redeemed. You're set free. You're made new. There is no exception to that. Now, there are people who have chosen to live in sexual immorality consistently with no repentance, with no confession. They do not desire to do it God's way. And if you are in that boat, you need to seriously evaluate whether you have ever surrendered to Jesus. 
Because Romans 6 says, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we, who have been set free from sin and bondage, return to it again? But there is redemption and hope for every single broken relationship when it relates to the sexual relationship. There is redemption in Christ. How do we taint God's design? Number one, we allow secular culture to inform, inspire, and educate us on sex. Church, we, we cannot do this. It is not culture's responsibility to train your children when it comes to sex. If we believe God designed this, we should be the first to say we're going to teach this as part of discipling and equipping our children. And that doesn't matter whether you have kids, all right, or you are simply someone who is older than someone who's in the church. You have a role to disciple the next generation. Christianity is always one generation away from extinction. The moment we fail to make disciples of the next generation is the moment that the church dies. Deuteronomy chapter 6 says this. And this is really a challenge to parents. At any stage, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. How many of you have memorized that? You could say that at the drop of a hat, okay? Look at what else it says. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. It's funny. I don't see anywhere in Deuteronomy 6 where it specifically instructs parents to take their kids to the synagogue where they will be trained and discipled. I don't see anything in here that specifically tells parents, by the way, make sure you drop your kids off at the tent meeting where we'll take care of communicating this stuff to them. What does it say? Parents, teach your children this diligently. Recognize your responsibility to do this faithfully. I heard a <clears throat> really gifted speaker named Vodi Bakum say once when it came to family discipleship, he said, Man, if someone comes to the church and they aren't tithing, we don't set up a program to tithe for them. Why should we do the same when it comes to the discipleship of our children? I thought, oh, conviction. Because how easy is it for us to do that? When it comes to concepts, not just about sex, but about theology, are we investing in our families? Are we training our children? Here's the reality, church. It's way easier to get worked up about secular culture deciding to implement secular sexuality courses at young ages than it is to get worked up about the staggering number of church-going families that don't even read Scripture together. It's easier to get worked up about what the news is saying about the state of sexuality in our culture than it is to get worked up about the number of professing followers of Jesus who have never had a biblical conversation about sex and sexuality with their kids. And I'm not saying we shouldn't speak out as the church against culture's desire to taint what God has designed. But I am saying that we should be just as upset if we don't follow God's planned design for discipling our own families.
And in fact, we should be more upset because in that moment, we are not obeying what God has called us to do. The second way we taint God's design is we add caveats to faithfulness. I'll be faithful to my spouse as long as they meet these requirements. I will stay pure before marriage as long as it comes in my timeline and as long as it comes on my, my turf. We add caveats to faithfulness, okay? We add extras. We have little star asterisks to what faithfulness is. Well, I'm going to be faithful unless. I'm going to be faithful except when. No, no, no. Here's what Hebrews 13 says. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Well, we have to understand in that that Jesus, what did he say about adultery? He said, if you even look at someone with lustful intent, you've committed adultery in your heart. Okay. This takes it to a whole other level. God has called us to faithfulness in this relationship because it so models what he has desired us to understand about the gospel. We can't add caveats to what faithfulness looks like. The third and final way that biblically we end up tainting God's design is that we make sex about ourselves. It's about what I want and what pleasures me. It's about when I want it and how often I want it. It's about how I want it. It's about me, 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 me. This we could probably identify as the case not just when it comes to the sexual relationship, but when it applies to almost anything. When it's about me, that's the anti-gospel. <laughs> that is the opposite of good news. Because The bad news was what? In and of yourself, you are incapable of righteousness. If you don't believe me when I say this applies to the sexual relationship, turn into 1 Corinthians 7. Because ultimately, it doesn't matter what I say. What does God's word say? 1 Corinthians 7, it says this. Now concerning, this is verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another. Yes, that's talking about sex, church, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. Why? That you may devote yourselves to prayer and then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, clarification here. When God says the woman does not have authority over her body, the husband does not have authority over his, this is not an excuse ever. God never excuses abuse. And so this is not a situation where you can look at Scripture and go, well, I'm going to take this home and I'm going to plop down on the couch and I'm going to open to 1 Corinthians 7 with my wife. 
God says, you have to give me sex. No. God says, you're to serve others before yourself. The gospel says, it's to be about others first, not you first. The gospel says, you making it about you first is the problem. And it's only when I surrender my life to Christ that I am saved. In the same way, the only way for you to end up with a healthy marital relationship is for both of you to decide I'm going to put their needs above my own. You want a recipe for a fantastic relational life and a fantastic sex life? You serve each other every hour of every day. Now, I want to illustrate this a little bit because sometimes it helps to have a visual. And those of you who have taken Charlie and Rhonda's vertical marriage class, this is an illustration that I, I am borrowing from that. So this is not of my own doing. But it illustrates very well this concept of how men and women are different in this way. Because some of you may go, I, I don't even know how to begin this process of serving my spouse in this way. How does, how does this look practically? Well, guys tend to be much more compartmentalized. I, I, my phraseology that I use anytime I teach on this is men are like file cabinets and women are like plates of spaghetti. Okay, men you can... You could pull, that's, that's not a bad thing, okay? Alright? Spaghetti is a really good thing. <laughs> Men can pull a file out and focus just on that file, and when they're done, they can put it away and pull out another file. Women, everything's connected. Everything is tied to something else. That includes sex. So when it comes to a man and the sexual relationship, Maybe you've started the day and you've kind of been flirting around the house and you're getting ready to go to work and there's kind of a hint dropped like, we, sh- we should have some fun tonight. And so all day long, what is that guy thinking about? And he focuses on his work, but ultimately, especially he gets in the car to come home. I've got this on my mind. Nothing wrong with that. Now, here's where this becomes different, guys, for your wives. Because everything is connected, here's what's happening day in and day out, okay? There's all these bags full of stuff, okay? And your your wife is wearing her heart on her sleeve for her family or kids, and then you add all of this other stuff on top of it, whether it be housework, and you're coming home shaking your little box, and this is how your wife looks. Under the surface, this is what's going on. Well, then what happens? Well, the husband's going to get frustrated because he's trying to maybe initiate something and kind of try to play and flirt around. And the wife's just discouraged, like, I I, I don't even, I can't even go there. And then the husband gets upset and he starts getting snippy and frustrated. It's like, why, why can't you, why can't you get into this in the same way? What's going on? What's taking place? What's happening is this. Because all of this is connected. For a guy, it doesn't take long for him to get excited about physical relations. For a woman, you, you guys, you've got to do some work at helping and caring and shepherding your home. Now, 
All right, just for clarification, because ultimately, this is an illustration that's been done. I saw it done by a couple that was doing it. Women, I have, I, I'm claiming no truth to recognizing whether this is accurate or not. Is this an accurate representation? All right, all right, okay. Here's where we become selfish on both sides. Women, you become selfish when you look at all of this and you just go, I can't even think about or serving you or caring for you until I deal with all of this. I need to deal with all of these things that are on my plate and then we can, we can go there. And until then, bug off. Okay? Selfish. Guys, the way you are most selfish in this is to look at your wife in this state, whether you see it or not, and you say, well, forget it. I'm going to go turn on the TV. I'm going to decompress. I'm going to go to my basement. I'm going to just go to bed. I'm going to cash out for the day. I'm done. Selfish. So how do we serve each other in the midst of that? Will you start? A great place to start is to start by asking. And this, guys, I'm speaking mostly to you here because God's called you to be the leaders of your homes, to be the shepherds of your families. That's your job. Is you ask your wife, what's, what, what's the heaviest bag that you're carrying right now? What is the thing that is most discouraging to you right now? And by the way, make sure when you ask that question, everything else is off. The TV is off. The phone is off. You're not sitting there staring out the window. I know you can have a conversation with your buddies and never make eye contact. Your wife needs eye contact. Sit down and face her and ask the question, what's the heaviest load you're carrying right now? And then, here's the hardest part, guys. Don't try to fix it. Okay? Or ask the clarifying question, do you need me to fix this or do you just need me to listen? This is a training process, church. It takes work. But ultimately, here's what it's rooted in. It's rooted in this reality that you look at the gospel and you say, I know I'm redeemed in Christ because he chose to give his life for me. And so when it comes to my marriage, I'm going to choose to give myself for my spouse. In every way, in a physical way, in an emotional way, in a relational way, in a practical way, I'm going to devote myself to them. God's design sex for mankind's benefit and his glory. This is just a piece of the puzzle, church. Every relational engagement we have is an opportunity to model the very love and grace that's been given us in Jesus. This is no exception. So I'm going to challenge you. I want to challenge you to maybe engage in a conversation like this today. I want to challenge you to think about how you educate and equip your children so that they understand that sex is not bad. It's quite the opposite. It's very good. And why is it that way? Because God designed it to be very good. Is there boundaries? Absolutely. Because we are sinners and temptation to sin is rampant. But there is redemption in Jesus. And there is a new opportunity every day for us to embrace the gospel and run with endurance to Jesus. Amen? Father, I'm so thankful for the hope that you've given us in Christ. I'm thankful for 
the redemption and the forgiveness that we know has already been established. God, we confess that we are selfish people. May we recognize our call to be self-sacrificial, not only in our personal relationships at home and in our church family, but Lord, in our community, that we would be a people who are possessed by God, passionate about what you are passionate for, valuing what you value. And that who we are declares the glory of God as one unit. Lord, use this to sanctify us, to make us more like your son, I pray in his name.